0: The Lord in his anger has cast a dark shadow over beautiful Jerusalem. The fairest of Israel's cities lies in the dust, thrown down from the heights of heaven. In his day of great anger, the Lord has shown no mercy, even to his temple. Without mercy, the Lord has destroyed every home in Israel. In his anger, he has broken down the fortress walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He has brought them to the ground, dishonoring the kingdom and its rulers. All the strength of Israel vanishes before his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. He bends his bow against his people as though he were their enemy. His strength is used against them to kill their finest youth. His fury is poured out like fire on beautiful Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord has vanquished Israel like an enemy. He has destroyed her palaces and demolished her fortresses. He has brought unending sorrow and tears upon beautiful Jerusalem. He has broken down his temple as though it were merely a garden shelter. The Lord has blotted out all memory of the holy festivals and Sabbath days. Kings and priests fall together before his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his own altar. He despises his own sanctuary. He has given Jerusalem's palaces to her enemies. They shout in the Lord's temple as though it were a day of celebration. The Lord was determined to destroy the walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He made careful plans for their destruction, then did what he had planned. Therefore, the ramparts and walls have fallen down before him. Jerusalem's gates have sunk into the ground. He has smashed their locks and bars. Her kings and princes have been exiled to distant lands. Her law has ceased to exist. Her prophets received no more visions from the Lord. The leaders of beautiful Jerusalem sit on the ground in silence. They are clothed in burlap and throw dust on their heads. The young women of Jerusalem hang their heads in shame. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Little children and tiny babies are fainting and dying in the streets. They cry out to their mothers, we need food and drink. Their lives ebb away in the streets like the life of a warrior wounded in battle. They gasp for life as they collapse in their mother's arms. What can I say about you? Who has ever seen such sorrow O daughter of Jerusalem, to what can I compare your anguish? O virgin daughter of Zion, how can I comfort you? For your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have said so many foolish things, false to the core. They did not save you from exile by pointing out your sins. Instead, they painted false pictures and filled you with false hope. All who pass by jeer at you. They scoff and insult beautiful Jerusalem saying, is this the city called most beautiful in all the world and joy of all the earth? All your enemies mock you. They scoff and snarl and say, we have destroyed her at last. We have long waited for this day and it is finally here. But it is the Lord who did just as he planned. He has fulfilled the promises of disaster that he made long ago. He has destroyed Jerusalem without mercy. He has caused her enemies to gloat over her and has given them power over her. Cry aloud before the Lord, O walls of beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no relief. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him in prayer, pleading for your children, for in every street they are faint with hunger. Oh Lord, think about this. Should you treat your own people this way? Should mothers eat their own children, those they once bounced on their knee? Should priests and prophets be killed within the Lord's temple? See them lying in the streets. Young and old, boys and girls, killed by the sword of the enemy. You have killed them in your anger, slaughtering them without mercy. You have invited terrors from all around, as though you were calling them to a day of feasting. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one has escaped or survived. The enemy has killed all the children whom I carried and raised.
1: Let's pray. God, it's hard to hear all of Lamentations 2 read aloud. And I'd imagine many of us here like me who just wanted it to end. And I pray that we would pay attention to our discomfort during the reading. And that whatever it is that sparks in our spirit, we would take note of that, God. And we would pay attention to it, that that you might be inviting us into the spiritual places in our lives that are unknown or uncomfortable. And God, as you are faithful, I ask that you would meet us in those places this morning. I pray that we would open up our hearts and our eyes and our lives to receive what it is you have to speak to us. You're already here, God. We welcome you. We ask that you would continue to move and do what you do. Would you point us to you? Would you help us know you more intimately, even in the midst of sorrow or despair or suffering? And God, I pray that you would give me your words to speak this morning. I pray that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you and that everything we do here today together would bring glory and honor to you. Help us to make much of you. Help us to love you. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, Journey. My name's Chris. I'm thankful you're all here. I know that uh, you kind of like go from singing and then you hear Lamentations 2 read out loud and it's not the the most riveting welcome you maybe ever received, but uh, there's something really real about it and and I, I just love that we would all gather together in this room on this day Uh, literally every single one of us could be somewhere else doing something else. And for some reason, here we are sharing this room together. I think because all of us on some level have an expectation that God is up to something. God might be up to something in our lives, maybe at this very time we're gathering now, maybe in the future, but we have an expectation that God might be doing something Today, you're you're joining us in in the midst of a series that we've titled, The Taste of Ashes, Learning the Art of Lament. And during this series, we are crawling through the book of Lamentations because I've found that that is actually the only way to get through the book of Lamentations is to crawl. And so as we learn about the art of lament in in this series, we also find ourselves in the midst of the season on the church's liturgical calendar known as Lent. And Lent is a time in which the Church Universal intentionally joins with Jesus in his suffering. We follow him into the wilderness for 40 days and we come face to face with our great need for him and repentance. And while we're wandering around in the wilderness with Jesus, we've got eyes set on the horizon, hopefully expecting the resurrection to come on Easter Sunday. But we're not there yet. So, to instruct us during the season of Lent, a season of fasting and suffering and waiting, a season that looks a lot like life, we're following along the Old Testament book of Lamentations. To lament is to passionately and openly express our sorrow, to cry out with honesty before God and before other people. Yet, I think in today's culture, we're prone To isolate, lament, or give it no space to exist at all. As I was reflecting on that reality, uh, I was reminded of a time about a year ago where where my wife and I accompanied a friend of ours to a, a crystal meth anonymous group. It's like an AA group, but for crystal meth users. It's an interesting place to, to find yourself and, and so we were invited to be a part of this because we were there to support uh, this young woman who was our friend and, and if you get to go as a guest then, and you don't speak and you just, uh, you just sit and, and listen to other people share. And what I found in that room, this dingy meeting room in a random office building of about 40 people is there was this uniquely intense mixture of bitter suffering and lament and celebration. One moment you would have someone share a story of relapsing on a drug that had already destroyed their life and their family and their kids' lives, And then the next moment you would hear someone who'd been sober for over two years and there was something that was being redeemed in their life and they they were beginning new relationships again. And it would go back and forth in this place, this mixture of intense suffering and sadness and destruction, yet celebration and relationship and redemption. And I can't put into words even all of what that experience meant to me. Because again, it's, it's not a place you find yourself often, but there was something so distinct happening in that room that I could not deny it was the work of God. And as all of that happened and, and the, the, the sharing went on, we finished our time. Everybody in that room stood up. We moved the chairs aside and we got in a circle. We prayed the Lord's Prayer together. And what you could feel and experience in that moment was a group of people going, I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this. But I know God's probably got something to do with it. And I know these people with me probably have something to do with it. And as I have been thinking about that experience, I was not as versed in lament as I am now, and I'm not very versed as it is presently. But I couldn't quite figure out how to bring together like the intense emotion that I felt, but but the need for for some sort of of reason or intellect going on. And I came across this quote from Richard Foster, who, who wisely said, emotion and reason are not opposites that we must choose between. We love God with both mind and heart. And I was so encouraged by that because I think this is a picture of lament. Lament engages the fullness of who we are so we can engage the fullness of who God is. And the reality of lament is that it's not an easy road. The journey through lament to hope is not linear by any means at all. It's scattered all over the map. And so if that's true, and I think probably we're like, yeah, that's probably true, we, we ask the question, then why might we actively engage in the work of learning the art of lament? Why would we do this? Why would we need this? Why would this matter? Chuck de Grote says this, he says, the two emotions we avoid more than any other these days are shame and sadness, And he said both of these require awareness, they require attention and engagement, and yet they're easily avoided by reactivity or addiction, busyness, cynicism, resignation. But if we attend to both of these emotions, they'll deepen us, and they'll ultimately make us more compassionate to others. Something changes in us when we do this. And so in the second chapter of Lamentations, we find God emerging as the main subject. Lamentations 2 begins every single line of verses 1 through 8 by placing God as the subject followed by a corresponding action that God does. As Brittany was reading, you may have noticed that early on, it's very intense to the actions associated with God and what he's doing. God is the main actor in Lamentations 2. And what happens is we're given a picture of God using Israel's enemies to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. And the people of Jerusalem, right, God's people who, who had been given time and time again to turn their lives back to God, God kept telling them, it's going to lead to your destruction. Turn around, turn around, turn around. And now here they are, faced with a tantalizing truth in 586 BC with the destruction of their city and their temple. They're facing the question, what if God is the source of suffering? Like these people, the, this point in their history, the people of God, they're now known for their rebelling against him again and again. They continue to turn their backs on this patient, long-suffering, loving God. And so it seems that at the height of what the author in Lamentations is writing about, he's, he's saying, right, God's actions are not temperamental. But instead, God's actions actually reveal a constancy and an integrity of character and ultimate faithfulness in his words. He is faithful to who he is, but above all, it's revealing God's covenant relationship with us, his commitment long-term to his people. And so as we learn from the book of Lamentations, lament is not evidence that we've lost our faith. I think that's our fear when we encounter lament, is that we'll cry out and we'll say something That will equate with our faith being gone and God will separate himself from us. Lament is actually proof that it's in the Bible, that it's in this holy text. It's given to us as proof of our covenant relationship with God. God makes a place for lament. There is space in our lives to cry out in this way. Lament is not an evidence of losing faith. Yet for these people who are writing this book, right, these people of Jerusalem whose city and temple have been destroyed, it's hard to swallow because they're coming to grips with the fact that God's judgment of Jerusalem is actually justified. In fact, it's a picture of, of fulfillment of God's promises, of him revealing his faithfulness. He said this would happen. He said again and again and again, turn back, turn back, turn back, or it will happen and then it happens. And so as we witness God's integrity in enacting proper judgment, this should also lead us to recognize that his integrity will also be evidenced in the process of restoration. In order for God to stay true to his character, God has to judge unrighteousness and injustice because he takes sin seriously. Not because he's grumpy, but because sin is destructive because it separates, because it leaves us broken. And so God is faithful in bringing judgment, but he will also be faithful in bringing redemption. God judges rightly, and he will restore rightly. However, sitting in the midst of suffering, crying out in lament is not often the place in which we're able to embrace this truth. We struggle to grab hold of that. Of course we do, because everything's falling apart. Yet the power of lamentations is that the voices of those who have actually suffered are not missing. They're given a place to elevate their voice. It's not just those who've destroyed them telling the story. It is those underneath experiencing the the utter pain and destruction calling out and personification of these people forces us to not explain away the suffering as we're prone to do learning the art of lament is again an invitation to sit with suffering in the spiritual landscape of the unknown and the uncomfortable we're invited there and looking at lamentations 2 verses 11 through 13 which we'll look at in a second it bears witness to this haunting cry Again, as I read these words, you'll find just as when Brittany read them, the grief is palpable and agonizing with a force with which we just cannot look away. There's something that's so powerful about it. We're locked there and we begin to feel these words. We begin to feel this cry in our own gut. Here's what the author of Lamentations says. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Little children and tiny babies are fainting and dying in the streets. They cry out to their mothers, we need food and drink. Their lives ebb away in the streets like the life of a warrior wounded in battle. They gasp for life as they collapse in their mother's arms. What can I say about you? Who has ever seen such sorrow? O daughter of Jerusalem, to what can I compare your anguish? O virgin daughter of Zion, how can I comfort you? For your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? There's an intense weight in these words. And for me, as I was trying to access the depth of that grief, I was having a hard time getting to the place of understanding what it would have been like to be the people of God in Jerusalem, witnessing all of this happening, that would cause them to write these words. And so as I was asking for God to help me understand that and embrace that and live into that, uh, I, I got an email from an organization that I follow called Preemptive Love. And Preemptive Love does a lot of work in Syria and with Syrian refugees. And just recently, a few days ago, the a terrible bombing in Syria. And so they were asking for like immediate help from those who support them and in that there were stories of what was happening and there were pictures and as I was reading the email and looking at the pictures on a computer screen thousands of miles away in the comfort of my home I saw the faces of children bloodied and dying running for their lives being carried by their sister a city being destroyed. And for a moment, I caught a glimpse of where words like this and Lamentations too come from. I felt the hopelessness. I felt the despair. I felt distance from God. And as I sat with that, I felt as if God was saying to me, what if lament, what if lament is a form of praise? Like what what if I told you that praise can be tears and praise can be anger and praise can be doubt, praise can be frustration, praise can be sacred distance. Because lament as a genre is placed in an entire book of the Bible that is called Psalms, right? Which is a book of praise. 40% of those Psalms are laments. What if lament can be praise? Because what lament does is it broadens our reference of praise. It allows the entire spectrum of our humanity to be present. It turns out that we are walking praise regardless of how we feel if we turn that to lament. What what a way to rescue us from the guilt we throw on ourselves when we cry out in our sadness and sorrow, suffering and grief. It's It's a heavy concept. This whole book is heavy. And so as we finish our time today, I'm going to take us a little bit on a a word journey, if you will. Because what the idea of lament does is it forces us into places that we're reluctant to enter. Places we don't want to go. I did not want to sit with the images of Syria in front of me. I did not want to sit In my own suffering, I did not want to sit with my friend or family or community who is suffering. But lament forces us into places we're reluctant to enter. And what we do so often in those places is we rush in to the darkness looking for a holy spark, right? Immediately light this place up, God, immediately. But what Lamentations does is it teaches us to sit in the darkness of lament first. To stay there for a moment. And lament then helps us out of sinking into the despair of sorrow and suffering. But it does invite us to sit there. Lament is there to guide us. The Hebrew word for lament has a few distinct metaphorical meanings. And so I'm gonna take this word and and I'm I'm gonna turn it a bunch of times for us. So one of the definitions of The word that the Hebrew Bible uses for lament is the word place. The word for lament is also a place. This means that it's a stop along the way. We must make sure that we stop in the place of lament. We must stop. We must engage. We must encounter the place of lament in our own lives. We cannot bypass this place because it's a place along the way. We have to go there. But because it's a place, it means it's not the end. And so lament, again, we spin the word one more time. And another meaning of this word, right, it's a robust word in the Hebrew language. Another meaning of it is for the word spear, And it's telling us that the power of lament is a destructive force. It's real. It's piercing. It will cut all the way through. And we must allow this spear to do its necessary work of pointing us to the one who knows our pain. And then you spin it again. And in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Lamentations is not called Lamentations. It's actually called How. Like how. And the word for how in Hebrew has a, a few different forms. But this word is the lengthened form of how. As in like how. It's as if it's calling out from the soul to God the cry as how. It's expressive and primal yet a simple cry. And again, it's this word, how, that's being lengthened. It's as if it's pulling you and you are being stretched by your own suffering and trauma. It's lengthening you as well. It's pulling on you as well. That is the work of lament. You spin it again in another relationship to the word lament. Lament builds on the word for place. Rabbis for centuries have interpreted this simple word as another name for God. That the word for place is a name for God, the connection being whatever place we find ourselves in, God is in that place. Even when it's too dark to see him, God is still in that place you spin the word again in another meaning to lament. It's related to the word for a nest. A nest. Like where does a mother keep their vulnerable? In a nest. And so even though you're in a place of lament, don't think you're forsaken. Lament is actually a place also where God's protective wings are covering you. It's a sanctuary of a nest. You are where you're supposed to be. And you spin it one last time. And there's one more word it's related to. And it's the idea of a metal worker forging metal to forge. So the idea, right, of course, is that lament breaks us down, it stabs us like a spear. Right? It's a, a place of misery, but it's also a nest where we find rest and protection. And it's also an opportunity for us to forge, to forge a new life and a new community and a new relationship that we wouldn't be able to do without lament. It's the only avenue to something new. And so what happens is we short circuit our lament. We want to get out of it so fast. We want to spark, to light it up so fast. And what happens, we short circuit it and we're not allowing a new holy dimension of life to be formed and forged from the suffering. There's something on the other side of that. It's a place that is not the end. And the hope in the midst of that is that something new is being forged and formed. In a moment here, I'm gonna allow us some space to write our own lament. I'll provide you with a guide on how to do that. And then after we write them down, we'll bring them forward together as we receive communion. The idea being that the language of lament is the language of humility. And humility is the only posture with which we can come to the Lord's table and receive the body and blood of Christ. And so as we prepare ourselves to receive communion here in a moment too, I want us to remember that it's at the Lord's table where we encounter the unique intersection of suffering and celebration. It is the suffering of Jesus that we remember and bear witness to. Right, it is Jesus' body hung on the cross, represented by the bread. We take that bread, we behold that, right? We, we remember the body on the cross and we take that and we dip it in the wine that represents the blood, the suffering blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And yet, when we humbly surrender our lives to the saving work of Jesus found in the suffering love of the cross, we celebrate too. We celebrate too because it was this suffering that makes us whole. For in and through Jesus we're healed and whole. We're resurrected and redeemed. Jesus endures suffering even as he is forgiving the world. And there's reason for us to celebrate that. That he loves us in that way. The necessary condition for the celebration of the Lord's Supper is then lament. We enter the suffering where we take the body and the blood and we remember Jesus on that cross. But we walk away and we celebrate that he would die so that we could be made new. And now we go and live as the resurrected people he calls us to. We suffer and we celebrate. And so you'll see on the screen here, your guide on how to write a lament. There's paper on your seat, little pieces of paper. There's pens, the seat back in front of you. Take your time here for the next few minutes to write your own lament. Obviously, this is a guide. You can use none of it or all of it or some of it. You can write one word or zero words. It's your space to work out whatever type of lament you need to work out. And then in a few minutes, I'll pray and then the band will come up and they'll play a couple songs and at that time, We'll get up and we'll come forward and we'll receive communion and bring our laments with us. Our laments is a form of praise and we'll drop those laments in these clear vases, offering our lives humbly surrendered to God at the table and our praises of lament humbly surrendered to our God. Go ahead and take that time and I'll pray in a moment. God, would you hear our prayer, hear our praise, hear our laments, hear our cries, God. Thank you that you're a God who longs to hear from us, who keeps his faithful word. We thank you that you are a God who then in that is always near Even when we can't see you, God, we thank you for the suffering of your Son Jesus on the cross. We thank you that He did not stay dead, and that the power of your Spirit raised Him to life, and that same Spirit now resides in those of us who follow you. God, we would we be reminded that with your Holy Spirit present in our lives, that we're never alone. You are always with us. You are always for us. Give us the courage with that in mind to wade into the deep waters of lament, to sit with our suffering or the suffering of others or the suffering of this world in such a way in which we can sit with it and know that it is a form of being with you. But would you also give us eyes to see as we sit there that there's hope on the horizon. May we not rush through the lament, but would we know that on the other side, you restore justly and rightly. God, we come before you with all immense of praise, we come before you with our lives, humbly surrendered, to take the body and blood, the bread and wine. May you be glorified, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information, or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online
0: at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.